Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 74, Analytical Meditation, Going Beyond Coffee Table Dharma. The Sogjin Palap Rinpoche, one of the foremost teachers in the Nyingma and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism, joins us to discuss his efforts in creating a genuinely Western form of the traditional Shedra track of Buddhist learning. This is part one of a three-part series. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. Today I'm here with a very special guest, the Sogjin Punlamp Rinpoche. Very honored to have you here, Rinpoche. Thank you so much for taking time to, to come talk with us. It's a real honor. Thank you for having me here. Yes. I'm particularly honored to have you talk with me for the Big Geeks listeners because um, we focus a lot on Western Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And you're one of the best teachers I've seen that really understand the Western culture and, <laughs> and transmit the, the Dharma in ways that we can really grasp. And you're taking a lot of efforts to establish the Dharma here. Mm-hmm. One of those efforts is Natarta Institute. Mm-hmm. Natarta Institute, I've mentioned several times in our show here and there because um, I'm in the master's program in Naropa, mm-hmm. the Indo-Tibetan Buddhism program in the Shedra track, mm-hmm. which is entirely based off of the curriculum that you've helped develop at Natarta Institute. That's correct. Yeah. It's essentially, well, it sounds like it's the same curriculum and program and the, and the whole curriculum is a more succinct version of Shedra, of the mm-hmm. monastic college. That's right, yes. It's so, based on that. Yeah. It's based on that, mm-hmm. right. So could you tell us a little bit about the mission, the vision of Natarta and why you started that? Natarta Institute's main uh, mission is to, uh, you know, we're trying to bring the complete Buddhist richness of the wisdom tradition to the West. And uh, in order to do that, we need to develop the training system in the wisdom tradition, uh, which we call Shedra. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shedra means basically like you know university or college, right? Uh, and so at the beginning it was not easy because uh, a lot of things are very very much based on language and tradition and culture, mm-hmm. right? And so we need to uh, we have to find a way, yeah, right way to transmit the pure wisdom in a different culture and a different uh, language and different uh, uh, system here. Yes, and so. It took like about 10 years, but uh, wow. <laughs> we're slowly years. getting there. 10 years. We're slowly getting there, yes. That's amazing. Yeah, <clears throat> the translation is a huge part. Mm-hmm. Because I'm studying to be a translator, I've been very aware of the efforts made at the Tarta Institute, and there's constant revisions of trying to find the right way to say things. Trying Because vocabulary is very specific. Exactly, yes. Exactly, especially when it comes to like debate. Right, and you mm-hmm. can't have ambiguity around debate <laughs> terms because there's already enough built into it, right? That's correct, yes, debate. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. One thing you said is, a, um, is you're trying to establish a complete system, which for me, as a mm-hmm. practitioner, I've noticed is something that's being evolved right now. We have uh, a lot of Dharma centers, there's like study groups, and mm-hmm. maybe they'll pick a certain book, mm-hmm. and people will get together and study around that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of having a complete path mm-hmm. from start to finish, mm-hmm. That's what I think is very unique. And one quote that you that you have on the site is someone says, what a relief to really study the Dharma. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I hear that really study, <laughs> that's my experience at, at Naropa. Uh-huh. I've studied a lot before then, but until I got in Naropa and started studying Lorig, and we're going to go through the whole book and right. learn Lorig, mm-hmm. that's uh, pretty amazing because it's very thorough. It's the whole real deal. Mm-hmm. And it's part of a whole system. Mm-hmm. That's right, yes. Uh, the completely shared system is... Uh, <clears throat> Like, uh, it's very systematic, and also it's divided into different topics, like mm-hmm. epistemology, the middle way philosophy, 
and uh, like uh, topics such as Buddha nature. And so, <clears throat> you know, all spectrum of Buddhist teachings from Hinayana to Vajrayana. You know, right. we have that uh, uh, systematic training, which is uh, very uh, important in the West, I think, because, uh, you know, Western minds are also used to systematic training. Uh-huh. And, uh, well, of course, many things you can do it on your own by picking up books and reading and so on. But to get the whole picture of the path, the right. whole picture of the, the right. journey and the view of Buddhist teachings, then you really need to go a little bit deeper than coffee table Dharma books. Right. I'm, <laughs> yes. That's a really great <laughs> phrase, coffee table. I'm glad you brought that up because I've mm-hmm. kind of felt that like challenging myself mm-hmm. and my fellow practitioners to go deeper because that that's what I, the insight I had when I started studying in this way mm-hmm. was that, wow, <laughs> there's so much more here than I thought. And it's just like, wow, I have... Oh, it's overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, to say that it's taken 10 years to establish that also points to the depth and uh, of training that one needs to do <laughs> for the, the path itself. Yes, I think, you know, generally speaking for individual practitioners, it may not be necessary to go through all the training. Mm-hmm. But as a... Uh, as a mission to establish a genuine Western Buddhism. Yes. And there needs to be some, you know, deeper training for teachers, for uh, practitioners to to really establish what we call Western Buddhism. Right. You know, Western Buddhism cannot just rely on um, some easy, uh, you know, uh, trendy Dharma books. Right. Uh, which <laughs> which I actually really enjoy. You know, Kapi Temple Dharma books are the ones that I really enjoy. Yeah, they're inspirational <laughs> in a lot of yes, ways. Yes, yeah. very inspirational and very helpful and very beneficial for wider orange mm-hmm. audience, sorry. right, right. But uh, <clears throat> at the same time, in order to establish something deeper uh, as a complete Western Buddhism, then you know such uh, progressive and uh, uh, systematic training is uh-huh. really something we can't avoid. Right. So you know we have to start somewhere, and you know uh, somebody has to start it, and you know we tried our best from oh, our, yeah. our part. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> the, one of the first conversations I, I've had um, on Buddhist Geeks was with Phil Stanley uh-huh. uh, and the very topic of Western Buddhism and what that means. And there's a lot of complexity to it. So I'm, I'm wondering what things have stayed the same and what mm-hmm. things that you've changed or adapted to establish a Western Buddhism. Now, when I look at the teachings, for example, in Lorig and mm-hmm. uh, Dujra, and uh, it's mm-hmm. it's... I mean, it's very specific. It's not like I'm thinking I'm looking at some different teaching right. Right, that, than, than uh, Tibetans have seen. Uh-huh. Same thing. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, there has to be some things that have changed either in maybe the method or the approach, and I'm just wondering what things you've, you've changed or that, that you see changing. What I've been trying to do is first to present as traditionally uh, as it is. Uh-huh. And that's number one, you know. And then the second step, is to bring that presentation into modern Western culture. Uh, so with more interpretations, mm. uh, with the different uh, experiments we do with the methodology of teaching. Uh-huh. You know, so we don't necessarily teach a, really like a traditional way. Uh, like, for example, like uh, uh, Dutra, mm-hmm. you know, clear, uh, clear thinking. Right. You know, we synthesize a lot, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and also Loric, like mind in its world, one, two, and three. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't present the whole Loric as one. Right, uh, you know, uh, cover to cover, uh-huh. but we take uh, <clears throat> content from logic, like for example, uh, sense perceptions, uh-huh. and then we take the the objects of sense perceptions from other sources, uh, not necessarily from logic alone. Uh-huh. So, you know, making it more uh, developing a textbook, you know, that's more comprehensive, 
Right. It's more Western uh, uh, to, to serve Western mind and audience. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. So, so methodology is changing, and the textbooks also we're trying to change. You know, ah, gradually. I see. Well, that is significant. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I think I had a mistaken notion about the text that I've had at uh, Naropa. So mm-hmm. that's been uniquely put together based off of uh, traditional that's, sources. Exactly. Yeah. So that that is definitely different. But mm-hmm. Everything in it, all the pieces are the tr- very traditional. It's yes. just being put together in a very unique way for Westerners to comprehend and to yeah. process. Yeah, and also it's a very uh, accessible way ah. yeah, to put it in an accessible way, and also very um, how do you call it? It's like uh, it's not diluting anything uh-huh. to make it easier, right? Uh, in terms of like you know um, cutting, uh, you know cutting down the content and so on. Uh-huh. But it's the whole content is there, but right. the way it's presented is different, and the uh, the other materials that we bring in, uh-huh. you know, makes it much easier. I see. It seems like mm-hmm. it's a, a kind of a more essential way of getting at 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 the main points. Would you say that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and also it's a way of getting to the going beyond just one. You know, particular point. I see. You know, traditionally when we study, we just study just one, you know, particular subject, uh-huh. um, a topic, so to speak. Right. Uh, and then the, the references are made and sometimes they are taught by the teachers, but there's no like materials, you know, handouts or anything. Right. You know, they just you know, present it. Uh-huh. You know, we have to either take notes or memorize. Uh-huh. But here, you know, we put them all down. Gotcha. You know, in a, um, uh, in a book. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for <laughs> for everything that you've done so far with that because oh, um, <clears throat> tremendous amount of work. I know. Yeah, that's one thing we do, uh-huh. and then the second thing is like you know debate. You know, debate, debate yes, has been really, uh, really challenging because the first time when I was teaching debate uh, at Netat Institute, you know, I was thinking, oh no, it's not going to work. Uh, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's not going to work because you know debate is really uh, dependent on the language. Right. Yeah, it's very kind of like a also. In some sense, we can say it's a language trick uh, you pull in the debate. Uh-huh. And of course, the topics are there, but also language. Mm. Uh, and so presenting that in English was a big challenge. Uh, but over the years, you know, uh, myself and all our staff and, you know, teachers, Western teachers and Tibetan teachers working together, you know, we found uh, a good middle ground, you know, wow. where the English uh, language debate can be as precise as Tibetan. Uh-huh. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's uh, quite easy uh, I mean, I won't say it's easy, but, you know, it's much easier than before. Right. Like, yeah, that know. seemed like one of the more challenging aspects when I've heard uh, Phil Talama Tempa talk about the debate part is that's the more challenging piece to work in. You get Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, could, that's difficult stuff, yeah. Could you explain a little bit about the benefits? I think, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if a lot of people have a really good understanding of, of why debate is used and how that's actually part of practice and not just something fun to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I've learned from my experience uh, of uh, doing debate at the uh, monastic college uh-huh. is that, you know, it really helps me to think clearly, uh-huh. uh, think precisely, you know, not to have like so random and, you know, scattered thoughts. Right. You know, whenever I think, uh, uh, whenever I say something, uh-huh. you know, I, I'm always processed, my, my words are always processed mm. in, in our thinking uh, in my thinking, you know, mm. thinking about what I'm going to say. Right. So it really brings some sense of like mindfulness, you know, to your speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, if you say this, you know, what will be the response? Mm. You know, so uh, it's not only good for like debating, but also to see like how uh, 
in day-to-day life, you know, how your speech affects people, mm. you know, their mind and their emotions, you know, their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, if you say this, you know, they will think this way and they will respond in this way, you know. And yeah. so uh, in some sense, it's like a really like a mind training, you know, right? Debate is like a mind training. Right. And uh, also it helps us to see our thoughts clearly, you know. Before we say anything, you know, we must see it clearly. You know, otherwise, if you make a mistake in your speech, then, you know, you're going to right. be fried in the right. debate. Yeah, uh, you know, and so right. it's <laughs> really, you know, it's really helpful. It's really helpful with like mindful speech, uh, clear speech, uh, mindful thinking and clear thinking, uh-huh. uh, precise thinking. It really brings a lot of precision and mindfulness and Uh, along with that, you know, if you join that with practice, mm-hmm. it can be very compassionate. Very interesting. I hadn't mm-hmm. really thought about the influence on your speech that debate had. I, I'd really focused yeah. on the kind of analytical understanding you have, but th- that it seems like it is a huge piece. It really makes you think a lot. Yes, it is. And in some sense, it's a little bit like a, you know, training in lawyer, lawyering, uh-huh. legal arguments, you know, right. yeah, because they, yeah. they always think that yeah. way. Like, you know, if I say this, you know, then this will be the response and then I will say this and then that will be the response. That's a perfect example. You know, I, that kind of, we have. yeah, right. that kind of thing really goes on in your mind when you're doing debate. Ah. And especially if you're really trained in debate, uh-huh. that, that kind of kicks in all the time, you know. Interesting. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I haven't done it for so long, so it's kind of fading right now, but uh, yeah. uh, I still have a residue of that. Uh-huh. Uh, and it really helps me with my... Uh, Like mindful speech. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and this definitely all ties into using <clears throat> the analytical, intellectual mind to help us with practice. And I wonder if you could say something about that. And on the site, Natarta's site, there was a comment about what one of the goals for Natarta in the study, and that was to help give language to explore one's experience and articulate questions and insight. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how this intellectual, analytical study really fits in. From my own experience, You know, going from the kind of coffee table study uh-huh. to this really in-depth study. Uh-huh. And Naropa also teaches analytical meditation. Right. And it wasn't until Naropa, until I really started seeing how um, analytical thought and analysis of meditation really fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had this loose understanding, like, of course, I need to study so I get some right. things and then I can <laughs> practice. Uh-huh. Um, but there was a lot more going on there, I think. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could say, say something about that. Yes, uh, analytical meditation... <clears throat> really is a process of uh, first your scattered thoughts uh-huh. uh, to bring it to uh, precise and focused thinking. Uh-huh. And then that focus and precise thinking uh, brought into, uh, transformed into meditation. Uh, mm-hmm. So, sorry, focused thinking is transformed into analysis. Uh-huh. And then that analysis is transformed into meditation. Uh-huh. So that is called uh, analytical meditation. Uh-huh. And so you can see it's almost like, you know, a shamatha sitting. You know, when you sit, you know, you try to see your thoughts, right. you know, uh, how busy your mind is right. you know, with all these thought processes going on uh, and then calming it down, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in analytical meditation, we use a different method instead of like, you know, sort of letting go of thought, but we use thoughts as a path. Uh-huh. And so bring them into analysis, uh-huh. you know, make it into more focused and concentrated Uh, which is we call samadhi, right? Concentration. Right. Uh, so meditation. So the thought becomes more concentrated. And when it's more concentrated, then we focus that towards any uh, object of analysis, like ego, you know, uh-huh. or emotions. Uh-huh. So we put it, you know, into analysis. And then that analysis is uh, transformed into meditation. 
Could you say more about the transformation into meditation? Because that's where I, yes. I think I've started making some sort of connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than them being kind of like over here, one's on this side and one's on this side. Mm-hmm. And somehow they have a magical relationship. But there's a real, seems like there's something very tangible about. Um, also, you said uh, using the thoughts. Yes, as a path. As a path. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we have ideas about thoughts um being the bad thing you that's know, like right all these yes. thoughts distraction, like, oh, distraction. And so, on, yeah. so yeah how does that happen how do they transform into the into the meditation here you know our thoughts are directed into more like a focused thinking uh-huh. you know rather than just uh, you know discursive thinking uh-huh. and so focused thinking you know you're still thinking it's still thought uh, you're not denying the thought uh, or you're not trying to stop the thought it's still a thought, but it's a more directed thought. Uh-huh. You know, thought that is directed towards something more more uh, meaningful, uh-huh. like towards, let's say, emotion. Like when you're having such a strong anger, you know, arising, uh-huh. <clears throat> and then you can do analysis, you know, analytical meditation, mm. and say, "Oh, okay, now I'm feeling anger." You know, that's a thought, uh-huh. but it's more directed. You know, say it's a mindful thought, mm-hmm. uh, and then you look at anger. You know, what is anger? You know. Uh, when you look at that, you know, uh, when you analyze it, right, that's kind of process of analysis, right? Mm-hmm. So first you say there's anger, and then you say, okay, what is this anger? Mm-hmm. And so you start looking into it. Uh-huh. And when you start looking into this uh, experience of anger, then it's really difficult to find, you know, anything uh, tangible there. You know, it's just a feeling, uh-huh. you know, and, and then you start looking at that feeling, you know. So when you keep looking and looking and looking, and then you know less and less and less we find, yeah. You know, so that's a meditation. Yes. You know, that's very interesting. I um, a metaphor that I'd start using because uh, people would talk to me about my courses and mm-hmm. and the meditations. And the one the kind of metaphor that I use was uh, like something short circuiting itself. <laughs> you know, like I keep thinking like I have these thoughts about something being very solid, and I take this meditation and I keep just drilling it, drilling it, and going over it, and eventually something kind of just starts letting go. Mm-hmm. And then there's another layer. <laughs> That's right, exactly, yes. There's another layer, mm-hmm. and it just seems like it's a process that repeats itself. So in some sense, it, it may not make sense, well, how does this anal- you know, thoughts help get rid of these other thoughts or help <laughs> see through these thoughts? But it really does. It's kind of a letting go process, it feels like to me. Exactly. Like, you know, it's like uh, you know, when our body is tense. Like uh-huh. we feel tension, right, like in the neck or shoulder. Uh-huh. And when you try to relax, you know, first you relax one kind of very stressed muscle, and then you can still feel like you're still tense, but in a different level. Uh-huh. You, you relax that more, and then you relax that more. You can see how many layers of, you know, uh, like you know, right. body tension right. that we can relax, you know. Mm-hmm. Like that, your mind also can relax in that way, you know. Uh-huh. You know, layer after layer after layer. And then at the end, when you totally relax and uh, with that feeling of anger or whatever, then when you just rest in that, then that's meditation. Uh-huh. You know, you get there only through analysis, you know. Interesting. Yeah, otherwise, like, you know, you cannot really get there at uh, at the point of relaxing because uh, we are so bothered by anger and disturbed by the anger and we uh, then we are thinking about the object of our anger and what they did to us <laughs> and so on. You know, then there's no more uh, sense of any, any sense of mindfulness or, or meditation there. Yeah, it's almost as we have no choice but to face them with analytical meditation. That's right. Meditation. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and sometimes, you know... Uh, People are not aware that they're doing analytical meditation, but they're already doing analytical meditation. Ah, can you give you an know? example? Uh, 
like people always analyzing, right? Always thinking and looking uh-huh. at things, right. but they don't see it uh, that uh, clearly that this is analytical meditation and there's a process to do it. I see. You know, and then sometimes we are successful and sometimes not successful. Uh-huh. And sometimes we do it right and sometimes we, we can't find the right way to do it. Uh-huh. And so when you go through analytical meditation training, then you find the, the techniques uh, which can help us to, uh, to do it in a more, uh, I don't want to use the right way, but in a uh, more effective way. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.